0: was in sixth grade. He earned a spot in um, this big regional science fair, and it was actually showcased down the street at Biola University. Uh, It featured students from all over the West, California, Nevada, Arizona, and uh, they all earned their way up all the way to that level with their experiments, physics, geology were none of those like little volcanoes with the baking soda. (laughs) No, it was way up there, way past that. Uh, Chemistry, microbiology, engineering, robotics. How many of you know my son, met my son before? All right, if you know him, you're not going to be surprised what he did. His project was investigating the behavior of music, the impact of music on behavior. And uh, so for about 21 weeks, our home, (laughs) was a squeaky, stinky laboratory with pairs of mice in cages. And our little scientist, he set up three sets of mice. Two mice lived in their cage with Mozart playing in one bathroom 24-7. Two mice were in another bathroom locked in there with hard rock music playing loud. 24 7. And the other was this control group. Uh, they were in our, our living room, our dining room, and they had no music at all. All the mice had the same homes, they had the same food, they had the same interaction levels. He was like charting it and marking it up all that time. The variable was the exposure to music. And you know, how many of you have done science projects or maybe you survived them with your kids? Okay. So this was a fun season, but the variable was this exposure to music. And what the mice were exposed to actually did impact them. Variables make a difference. Are you able to get the slide up of Jonathan there? There he is. There's our boy. And holding, yes, that's mice in his hands, holding him there. So well, we're three chapters deep. And I'm going to get back to this mouse mice story here. But we're three chapters deep into the Gospel of Mark in our series. And if you've been tracking, you'll recall that last week we covered the nature of Jesus' true identity, his true family, those who hear and do the will of God, his true family, our spiritual family. And at this moment, we're at a turning point now in Jesus' ministry. So would you open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 4? I miss the old days, like when I I would say open your Bible and I would like hear the rustling. Can you make a sushi sound or something and you get your ass going? I got a Bible here just in case. Oh, Jar, you're here for the sound effects. Yeah, there we go. All right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so today, super exciting. I love it when when uh, Joe works out all the sermon outlines and I see what which one I'm lined up for. And I'm like, whoa, he gave me that. That's a big one. he's a big one. I'm really excited. So, and I always joke with Joe, uh, when he leaves out of town, I'm like, well, I'm going to make sure you listen to all your sermons to do like a heresy check.
1: <laughs> so I'll,
0: I'll tighten up his theology. I'm just kidding, Joe. You know, I'm just kidding. He's snorkeling. He doesn't hear me. All right. So today, we're going to look at the most significant parable that Jesus ever taught. The most important one. And you're like, what? That's a lot of parables. I have prodigal sons up there. I don't say this lightly, and I only say it's the most important one because Jesus said that. I didn't come up with that idea. Actually, Jesus said it. So go ahead and skip ahead in Mark chapter 4. Scroll down or over to verse 13. He said, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? One parable to rule them all, right? If you understand this one, you'll understand the rest. And there are at least 30 more. So yes, this is very important. Let's pick up in Mark's chapter 4 again and back up to verse 1. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat, sat on it on the lake. Now, Jesus has been teaching and teaching and teaching. And from the moment he began his ministry, he's been in synagogues. That's actually where he kicked off his ministry. Then he's been by a lake. He's been crammed into a house and he ripped open the sunroof for him, reclining with tax collectors. He has been walking the perimeter with a, in a wheat field. And now Jesus, he's teaching again. But this time... His popularity has grown so much, the crowd is so large, it's so pressing in on him, that he actually can't speak, and he can't teach, and so he hops in a boat, and he takes a seat, and he sits, and Mark says, verse one, continuing, all the people were there along the shore at the water's edge. Now, who wouldn't love that kind of a Sunday service? get me I know. Pastor Joe or me, we're in the boat, somebody's steadying it, and you guys are all out there, suntan lotion, your fancy drinks. Everyone wanted to see Jesus. Everyone wanted healing. So Jesus traveled, and he taught, and he forgave, and he healed, and he cast out demons, and he ticked off the Pharisees, and here, He's now pressed on every side by this longing crowd. I want you to keep that in your mind as we read on. Think about the size of that crowd—so big that Jesus needed to get off the shore and onto a boat. It's a busy scene. It's exciting. It's loud. And imagine the crowd, You're the crowd, as Jesus steps into this teetering, fishing boat. Imagine, Imagine the, disciples the disciples maybe off to the, the sides side, of holding the boat steady so he can teach. teach. He's, He's far, far enough out of their reach, but, but close, close enough so he can be heard. heard. In, in fact, the, the acoustic, acoustic setting from that boat, boat would have made a perfect spot for Jesus' voice to carry. To carry. So Jesus sets up in this boat. He sits down. That was the custom for teachers in that day to be seated. I would never do that because see what, look what happens. Can you see me now? (laughs) I got my right there. But Jesus, he didn't have to worry about all that. He doesn't sit down so he has trouble. He sits down because that's the place of authority. And he says this Greek word, the first word you see there in verse 3, the Greek word akouo. We get our word acoustics from it. If You're hearing my voice bounce in this room. That's the acoustics of this room that's enabling that. And in verse 3, he says, akouo, listen up. Now, I can say that with my big playground voice and I've got the mic, in, but I bet you right now there's somebody in the back of the room with a big booming voice who could say Akuo really loud, especially if he's paying attention right now. Jeff. Hey, I knew he would come through for me. I visualized that whole part of the message. Anyway, Akuo, nice and loud. Thank you, Jeff. And a hush falls and he's got their attention And the crowd is ready, and the crowd is waiting, maybe even thinking that Jesus, who's been healing and casting demons and all the things he's been doing, maybe they're thinking, whoa, is he going to do like a mass healing, right? Maybe that's why he's out in that boat, right? He's going to lift up his voice, he's going to raise his hands, and he's going to send a shock wave of healing out from his fingers, and that whole crowd's going to go home healed of whatever they came with. How do you think that crowd felt when instead of a mass healing, this happened? Jesus begins to tell a story. A farmer went out to sow his seed. Mark 4 3. Story time? Yes not just a story. Actually, Mark says in verse 2, I skipped it on purpose, I wanted you to kind of get with me in the story. He taught them many things by parables, a special kind of story. And the group listening doesn't know that yet, and they're thinking, a story? Uh, I'm, I'm here to be healed? And maybe the skeptical guy is nudging his friend who brought him there because you know the friend is like I saw him heal this other guy and they cut down through the roof and then he dropped down. you've got to hear Yeshua he's amazing and this guy this so amazing guy sits down in a boat and starts telling a story about a farmer and some seed yawn right I'm here to be healed I got a disease I got a broken leg my mom's blind maybe some of them even wander off disappointed but others Find a spot, and they wait it out, and they sit. And Jesus continues, verse 4. As he was scattering the seed, this farmer, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Let me tell you what you already know. This is no regular story. Mark's already said that. Jesus taught many things in parables. A parable means a story that parallels another. Para, close, beside, and balo, to cast. So Jesus is casting a truth from this boat, alongside a story that they could relate to. He says, some fell, the seeds fell on rocky place where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Everyone's like, I've seen that before. Another seed, they fell among thorns. How many of you have ever walked through your yard here in La Mirada and stepped on one of those. I stepped on one of those, I think they're called actual devil thorns. And they look like the head of a goat, which is like the devil. I had no idea those evil demonic things existed. If Jesus is going to cast a demon out, he should start with my lawn. And so other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so they did not bear again. And other seeds still fell on good soil. It came up, it grew, it produced a crop. Everyone's like, well, that's kind of cool. Some multiplied 30, some 60, some 100 times. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. End scene. (laughs) That's it. And given the size of the crowd and the size of their expectations, this must have been a bit awkward. (laughs) People were checking their ears. Hey, I have ears, you know, the sarcastic guy in the group. Is that all you got, Jesus? Did I miss something? After Jesus commands everyone, kuo, listen up. He tells them a simple story, not just a simple story, but like a Dr. Seuss level tale. Who's this guy? And the note takers, you know, they had nerds back then. The note takers who were in the crowd, they had their little quills, they were hovering above their papyrus, or whatever they were writing on, and they're waiting for a nugget, waiting for a good zinger, only to hear Jesus tell a tale literally as old as time. Seeds grow in good soil and die in bad soil. Okay. Now, that's a science project. How many of you had a kid who did the little seed in the bag, the little zippy bag, right? All right. And in this agrarian society, that was so basic, it was actually probably laughable. There's no news here. Everyone understood good and bad soil. Galilee was surrounded by fields. I actually Googled it. If you look at the Sea of Galilee today on one of those landscape Google maps, it's still surrounded by fields to this day. Don't do that now. Pay attention. All right. Galilee was surrounded by fields and rocks. In fact, the rabbis had a saying that when God placed the rocks on earth, he tipped the barrel and dumped them all in Israel. So Jesus tells this preschool-level story except for maybe one detail, and this would have gotten their interest. And Jesus just left it hanging out there. Look back at verse 8. He's talking about the seed that landed in the good soil And what happened to that good crop? It came up, it grew, produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Now, if you were a decent farmer in Israel 2,000 years ago, you could expect maybe a five-fold yield. For every seed you sowed, a plant with five seeds would grow up. That's good. If if it was a really great, really great bumper crop, you might get seven-fold. So the one shocker in Jesus' story is this supernatural crop. In Jesus' story, seed fell on good soil, and it produced not seven, not even 10 or 15, but 30-fold. That's some crop. And Jesus goes even farther to drive it home and says, some 60, some 100 times. And this, some people would have scoffed hearing that. And maybe he laughed. And maybe that guy in the back shouted, I'd like to see that kind of crop, right? Actually, one time in the Bible, a crop of that size is mentioned 100-fold. And what's crazy is this crop was produced during a famine. But God had a special blessing for his man, Isaac. And all women's Bible study ladies are all going, I know about Isaac. Amen, ladies, right? Genesis 26, verse 12. Isaac planted crops in that land and the same year reaped a hundredfold. And do a search in your Bible. That's literally the only time it occurs. And why did it produce a hundredfold? The Lord blessed him. So maybe in that crowd was someone who remembered that story of Isaac, who was blessed by God, and who in the middle of a famine planted a crop that yielded a miracle. A hundred seeds for every one that was planted. And maybe someone in the crowd is starting to think that there's something more to this story. Every account in Mark's gospel up to this moment, there's been a healing. Page back through, go back to chapter 1, look. There's been a healing or a demon cast out, there's been something miraculous. But not today. The crowds don't get a miracle. There's no healing. There's no demons going to be cast out. There's no hands unshriveled. Just the story. And that's all. And Mark says that, verse 10, when he was done, the 12 and the others around him Asked him, Jesus, about the parables. The disappointed, unimpressed crowds wrapped up story time and head home. And the disciples figured there was more to the story. And there was. Remember, I skipped ahead and reminded you that this parable is the key to it all. And here they are asking, Hey, what did that story mean? Verse 11, he told them, The secret. Of the kingdom of God has been given to you. The Greek word translated either mystery or secret. Who has mystery in their Bible? Who has secret in their Bible? Who forgot their Bible? Mm. Get your Bible out. This is church, people. <laughs> it's either translated secret or mystery. It's the word mysterion. And that's the only time jesus utters the word the only time in all the gospels some of you have a study bible and maybe you've got some notes down in the in the bottom margins and maybe you like to read commentaries about the bible and get more understanding would you like to know what the absolute best most reliable commentary that you could get on the market today for the bible ladies genesis bible study don't say it Would you like to know what the best commentary is available that you can get on the Bible? It's the Bible. The Bible is the ultimate resource to help you understand the Bible. The mystery that Jesus is talking about is a mystery that's been prophesied since the time of the patriarchs, judges, kings, and prophets. Jesus only refers to it one time right here in this parable. But Paul picks up on it, and in 1 Corinthians he says, We declare God's wisdom a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And in Romans chapter 11, Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant of the mystery. Israel has experienced a hardening, we're going to get to that, a hardening of the heart until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And Jesus says, not only has this mystery been given to you, talking to his disciples, but to those outside, everything is said in parables. This is significant for three reasons. First of all, because Jesus is getting his followers to see that there are only two groups, and it remains true today. There's only two. Those who are in with Jesus and those who are outside. It's not the Jews and the Gentiles. It's not the Democrats and the Republicans. It's not the vaxxed and the unvaxxed. There's only two. With Jesus, without the message of the gospel in its very nature is exclusive. And secondly, the mystery, the Jews have had their chance. But their hearts are hard. And the Gentiles are going to be coming in soon. And the third significance is the nature of parables. Now, you know the meaning of the word, parabolo, what's a nature? What does it mean if he's talking in parables? Every time a parable is told in the Bible, every time, without exception, every time, it's in the context of judgment. And there's nearly 50 parables recorded in the Bible. Probably the one from the Old Testament that you're the most familiar with is when David commits adultery, and what happens? Nathan the prophet comes over for story time. Remember that? And he says... um, this little story about a poor man and his little lamb, and he gets David all worked up about, oh, that man took the other guy's lamb, why, aye, yada. And then Nathan, that big dramatic moment. You know what he says? You are the man. That's the parable. Boom, judgment. So Jesus, sitting in a boat on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, makes a big shift in his ministry focus, and from this point. Forward, chapter four of Mark, forward to the end. The crowds, the religious people, they only get parables from Jesus. But why? Jesus is giving the disciples and us actually the key to unlock the mystery. So why speak in parables? The disciples didn't actually ask. But Jesus expects the question, and he quotes, the best commentary on the New Testament, the Old Testament. He quotes Isaiah, and he begins, so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving. They may be ever hearing but never getting it. They don't understand. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. What? What? They'll see and not perceive? Hear? Not going to understand? They might turn and be forgiven? That seems more confusing and kind of unfair, Right? I mean, what is Jesus saying? Two things to keep in mind. One is that Mark is really brief in the way he communicates. He's like a reporter. He just like zip, 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 zip going through. He's like a 140-character tweet, right? Matthew's got the big blog. You know, Luke's doing Facebook posts, whatever. Mark's just like out there tweeting, right? In fact, Mark notes only the actual conclusion, the gist of what Jesus said Secondly, Jesus is quoting what God said to Isaiah the prophet over 400 years ago, and here's the context. God's admonishing Isaiah that the people are hard-hearted and calloused. They will not hear. They will not see. I'm going to give you a message. You're going to tell them, and they're not going to listen. No matter what words of warning or judgment Isaiah brings, God says they won't see. They won't hear. So Jesus brings up this prophecy about the crowd that day, and he says... In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah you will ever be hearing but never understanding you will ever be seeing but never perceiving for this people's heart has become calloused and that's from Isaiah chapter 6 what the disciples are witnessing is prophecy being fulfilled Jesus is helping the disciples see that when he starts talking to them in parables he's saying judgment has come the crowds will reject the religious leaders will reject And like Pharaoh's heart was hardened, theirs is too. And now they can't understand. You might think, hey, isn't that kind of sudden? I mean, Jesus barely got here. Actually, Matthew's 13 chapters into the Jesus story. Luke is eight chapters in when he gets to this parable. Mark's so abbreviated, it feels like hardly any time passed. But the miracle of the loaves and fishes already happened. The Sermon on the Mountain has already happened. Mark just doesn't happen to record that. Actually, in Mark 3, we recall that the religious leaders had come down from Jerusalem. They infiltrated the crowds. They saw Jesus heal. They saw him cast out demons and teach with authority and forgive. And what did they do? Bow down, recognize him as God Almighty? No. They attributed to Satan what was clearly the Son of God. They committed the only unforgivable sin, blasphemy, giving Satan credit for what God is doing, and that sealed it for them. They had ears, wouldn't hear. They had eyes, wouldn't see. So now they're judged, and they can't hear, and they can't see, and Jesus is going to talk in a riddle because that's what a parable is if you don't get an explanation. It's a riddle. Or for the empty-headed, it's a dull little story. You know, this is a reality in the spiritual world as much as it is in our physical world, isn't it? We even have a saying, use it or lose it, right? Anyone who's broken their arm or their leg and been in a cast for a while knows this reality. After a few weeks, your leg's being locked up and your muscles start to atrophy and weaken and eventually you're going to lose the ability to actually move your leg if you don't get it out of that cast and start exercising it. That's what the heart hearted have caused to happen in themselves. They refused to hear and now they cannot hear. They refused to see, and now they cannot see. They're blind, and the mystery remains a mystery, unknowable to them. So Jesus turns to the soft-hearted, ready to hear, hoping to see, longing to know, verse 13, Mark 4. Then Jesus said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? And honestly, why doesn't Jesus just stop there? I mean, he could have just said that and walked away shaking and said, oh, ye of little faith, right? But think about it. Think back to Mark chapter two. Remember when Jesus forgave that paralyzed man? The teachers were thinking that he was blaspheming. They were just thinking it in their little heads. And what does Mark tell us about that? Jesus knew in his spirit what they were thinking in his heart. You don't think he knew in his spirit what the disciples were thinking in their hearts? He's here right now sitting with those disciples and the other followers, and he knows their hearts Matthew gives us a little bit more detail in his account, his version of this parable. He says in Matthew 13, Blessed are your eyes because they see. Blessed are your ears because they hear. Jesus knows their eyes. He knows their ears are open, just as he knew the eyes and the ears of the religious leaders were closed. Just as he knows your eyes and your ears, today, in this room, and hearing my voice online. He knows your heart. He knows if your eyes are open. He knows if your ears are open. So Jesus doesn't walk away. He continues, and they lean in. They're a good crowd, aren't they? The little disciples, the other buddies are with them. And Jesus continues, and they listen even more as he retells the parable. He says it over again. This time, he unlocks the mystery as he goes. A farmer sows the word he says before it was just a farmer and some seed, but now we begin to understand it's not just a farmer it's someone spreading the word of god what's the big rule about understanding the bible if you say it loud enough for joe to hear i'll be so happy and proud of you it's three words context context context, and often we think, okay, well, we'll be sure to read the verses right before, we'll read the verses right after, and we'll get some context, good for you, you should do that, but there's more. It's not just context in the sense of the words around that verse, it's the context of where it takes place, and where in time, or when in time, not just on a map, but actually the sense of those times around and in those times, what Jesus is saying to these people, fishermen fished tax collectors collected, that's who he's talking to, farmers farmed, but it was rabbis and prophets who spread the word of God. But Jesus isn't teaching to rabbis or prophets, is he? Who's he sitting with? Well, Mark did give us that detail back in chapter 3. He says these are the 12 he appointed, Simon Peter, James, son of Zebedee, his brother John, Andrew Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, (laughs) who betrayed him. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, we know they're a fisherman. That's documented. Thomas, uh, Matthew, he's a tax collector. You know that. Thomas, Bartholomew, we're not too sure. They might have been fishermen. Simon was a zealot. That's his personality, not his job. Then Philip, James, Thaddeus, nothing about their occupation. And finally, Judas. So Jesus is talking to four fishermen, one tax collector, seven other men, among all the others, men and women around, and exactly how many rabbis? Guseg, zero. Nothing. No rabbis, no teachers of the word, just working men and working women with ears to hear and eyes to see. And he continues explaining the parable. So notice that the farmer is the same. The seed is also the same. The variable is the types of soils and what happens to the word in each one. Jesus describes Four soils first. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes it away, takes that word that was sown in them and snaps it right off, right off that hard, well-trodden path, right before the five-second rule kicks in. <laughs> These are hardened people. They're prey for the birds. Jesus leads off. <laughs> I will say this actually about birds. They're like Satan in our yard as well. They just pluck our tree and they get our fruit before it has time. just like, you know, weeds and birds. So Jesus leads off with this parable, though, this part of it, um, the hard rock soil for a reason. The prophets called these the hard-hearted, the stiff-necked people. In Proverbs, they're called the fools. A fool doesn't receive correction. He won't hear wisdom. He refuses the truth. The religious leaders who accused him of blasphemy. And it's anyone who week after week after week hears the gospel and refuses to turn their heart to Jesus. And I think we're in danger of hearing a word like blasphemy and thinking about the religious leaders and how stubborn and hateful they were, and we kind of get out there pointing around like that and then dismissing the possibility that we could be anything like that. I'm not a blasphemer for crying out loud. But if you've heard the truth over and over, and you attend church, and you just sit there, and then walk out week after week, and you never surrender your life to Jesus, but keep him out there as a good teacher, that's a scary place to be. The seed is landed, and the seed's good, the variable is your hard heart. Like the well-worn path around the fields of tilled soil, the heart of the fool is resistant and you remain hardened soil, comfortable in your unsurrendered heart. So from hardened soil to rocky soil, and listen, there's a word I want you to pay attention for in this next verse, verse 16. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with, what does it say? Joy. This is an emotional but shallow response to the word. And maybe you're thinking, hey, aren't we supposed to be joyful? Aren't we happy when we get the gospel? Yay, I'm saved! Isn't that a defining quality for Christians? Joy? Sure. But listen, we often talk about people becoming a Christian and having a conversion experience. But that's deceptive. We can't truly count on anything if it's based on our experience, our feelings. Our faith isn't rooted if it's just marked by joyfulness. I'm so happy I'm saved. Good for you. You got your fire insurance? Yeah, sure. We're happy to be saved. Of course we are, knowing the alternative. But if we stop at joy and we're just so thankful that we do treat it like fire insurance. Here's the problem, verse 17, Jesus lays it out. They have no what? root. They last only a short time. Psst. Why? Because the trouble or the persecution comes because of the word. And they quickly fall away. Did you catch that? Because of the word, the word of God, trouble's coming persecution coming and it's all going to be because of the very word that jesus is teaching the word is received and it's received with joy even but it never roots why because these people want the feeling of joy just to last like an emotional high like a silly little newlywed couple i'm so happy we're married everything's gonna be great amen you know when i'm going on that one Love you, happy. No, we, we, we love the emotion, and it's good for the moment. But rooted faith, like rooted relationships hang in there. And they love the idea of the word, but not the reality of the word. They want the feeling to last. And when they've lost that loving feeling, they fall away. And feelings don't last, do they? What does James say? Count it all joy when you have trials. That produced character. If you're rooted in the word, then you will only you will only have that first happy feeling. And it'll be ending if you're not rooted in the word. You, you'll just have that experience if you're not rooted in the word. That's all you'll have. It's not gonna last. Jesus warns his disciples about this in John chapter 16. He says, You will weep and mourn. What? I, I don't want that gospel. <laughs> I want the happy one. All right? You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Their joy will turn to grief. In this world, you will have trouble. Count on it. But take heart. Why? I've overcome the world. This isn't our home. we got someplace better. I'm not a citizen here. Many of his followers actually bow out later on, and they will literally say, this is a hard teaching, you think? Who can accept this, you think? And those who had that joy will no longer follow him because of the word of Christ. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. Listen, you will never hear us from this pulpit ever, table, ever give an example, uh, a a call on an emotional appeal, appeal to come up here and get saved. We're not going to whip up your emotions and churn it up with some great music and atmosphere. The gospel will save you. The word of Christ will deliver you. You will be filled with joy for sure when you give your life to Jesus. But faith comes by hearing the word of Christ and letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It's not because you had some emotional experience. You had some come to Jesus moment and you're floating on that. Jesus is our ultimate example for this, isn't he? In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, he says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning his shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, is finished. Where was Jesus' joy? In that moment? No, he was enduring. He experienced the pain and the shame. The joy was set before him. The joy was to come, and that's where our joy, the true joy, is as well. True followers of Christ are the only truly joyful people. We're happy when you think we'd be miserable. We're content and we're satisfied. But it's not shallow in its emotion. It's deeply rooted in the knowledge of who Jesus Christ is and what he accomplished, what he has done and what we have confidence in. And then Jesus describes a third soil, verse 18. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this world, the deceitfulness of wealth, the desires for other things come in. Choke out the word, making it unfruitful. The Greek word for thorn is akontis. It's a common weed in that area, and interestingly, so interesting. It's the same word that Matthew uses when he describes the crown of thorns that was placed on Jesus' head. Here Jesus describes this Jesus and life. Jesus and the worries. Jesus and wealth. Jesus and wanting for other things. Worries and wealth and wanting or desires are all weeds. And what does Jesus say happen? Well, they do nothing But choke out that word and nothing comes of that life it's totally unfruitful the Greek word here is merimna it's the anxiety the worry the concerns the distractions it comes from a root word that means to divide what are the worries of this life what are the distractions what cause anxiety honestly it's almost never something that's bad in and of itself it's our focus that's wrong we worry about our family Our children, our homes, our retirement, caring about our family, our homes, our future, that's all normal, it's all good. Jesus says it's a thorny weed in the heart of the would-be follower of the word. Why? Because Jesus didn't come. Listen, Jesus didn't come to take our worries away. He came to give us life. We must cast our worries on him. He doesn't reach in and just grab out your worries what does he say cast your burdens on me he doesn't swoop in and take them we give them over our willingness to leave the worries to him is a sign of a true follower of christ you can't have jesus and wealth on the same level you can't serve both this is the rich young ruler remember him in matthew 19 what do i have to do to enter the kingdom jesus and jesus knows that man's heart and the one thing he knows that that man is holding back, he says, give up your money. And of course, that was the deal breaker for that guy. And he went away, sad, and he lost his soul. And many religions teach we shouldn't worry. I mean, that's a good axiom, isn't it? Many faiths even decry wealth and materialism. So in case there's anyone thinking, well, I don't worry about things, I'm good. I'm nowhere near wealthy. <laughs> got it (laughs) i want you to consider the disciples the four disciples were fishermen they gave that up and it wasn't much matthew tax collector could have heard this and thought well i could have been wealthy but i gave that up to follow you remember jesus and so jesus adds in desires for other things that's a catch-all it's a reminder that what jesus is offering a saved life not the good life or your best life now the word isn't a promise for you to get what your heart already wants <laughs> you already want a nice family you already want a good job you already want a great home and a retirement and friends and health you were born with a desire for comfort and acceptance and fun experiences and escaping trouble listen that's not what jesus is offering what jesus is saying is the heart that desires anything above the mission of the kingdom of god is a heart that is going to choke out the word. It's a weedy, thorny heart. The gospel will not coexist in that heart. It's Jesus only, not Jesus and. You know who tried Jesus and? Judas. (laughs) And where was Judas at this very moment when Jesus is reteaching and explaining this parable? Where was Judas Was he off plotting to betray Jesus? Was he counting the days to his big stab in the back kiss? No, Mark says all the disciples were right there with Jesus. Judas was sitting there in this moment hearing all these words. He had the sower sowing the word right there in front of him and maybe Judas had that joy. Certainly Judas left something or someone to follow Jesus for this time, but what was the variable? same sower, same seed. It was the soil of Judas' heart. Judas was a Jesus and disciple. Jesus and reputation. Jesus and comfort. Jesus and appearances. Jesus and recognition. Jesus and 30 pieces of silver, right? Ultimately, the desire for other things won, didn't it? And I think that Jesus and is the most insidious of them all because this person thinks they have Jesus. And what harm is there in adding a little more? I mean, who... Who wouldn't want to have Jesus and a really nice other worldview why not have the greatest teacher who ever lived and also your lifestyle it doesn't hurt anyone why not have Jesus who taught us all the love and also add a little love is love worldview why not have Jesus and your political party your delightful personality your Jesus and a charity Listen, this is how Jesus describes good soil. Verse 20, others like seeds sown on good soil hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, period. Hear the word, accept it, produce a crop. When the seed lands on good soil, you know what happens? You hear the word. You accept the word, and a crop is produced. It's not joy for a moment and then a falling away when the feelings and emotions subside. It's not Jesus, and let me hang on to my worries and my wealth and my competing desires. no. The good soil describes the ones who hear, accept, grow. And boy, do you grow. And that's the best part. Because the good soil doesn't just produce. It produces miraculously. Not all the same amount, but all in a way that anyone seeing that kind of growth could only say, hey, that's amazing. That's what a life with Christ should look like. Amazing. Evidence of supernatural miracle growth. The world is filled with good and moral, ethical, even kind people that Satan has snatched away. The world is filled with people who were joyful hearing the word but quickly fell away because of an emotional faith. And it won't withstand the trouble and the if they're not persecution if they're not rooted in the word of God. And the world is, of course, filled with people who attempt Jesus' and, only to be left with just the and and no Jesus. And the reality is, if the world is filled with these, and it is, then church can be as well right here today just like they were with jesus right there up to the end the sower is the same the seed the same the variable our heart and like my son jonathan's experiment showed variables make a difference you know how which set of mice performed the best the mozart ones <laughs> The music made the difference those mice were more focused and more able to finish the mazes that Jonathan created here he is he ended up winning first place for his work (laughs) go Jonathan you don't need Mozart for your heart to have the kind of soil that God's Word can grow in. you do need well tilled weed free soil when the seed of the gospel of the kingdom of God lands on ready soil it doesn't just produce a regular crop it's a miraculous crop because the crop it produces is somewhat 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. Remember the other crop in the Bible that had that hundredfold harvest? It happened during a famine in the middle of someone else's land, and God blessed that land because he blessed Isaac. You can produce a regular crop, but only God can produce a miraculous one. You can't plow up your own heart either. Plowing is God's work. And in a moment, we're going to have some quiet time and we're going to worship and we're going to think back through that I want you to come before the Father and reflect on what Jesus has given us. Take that time right now. Give your heart back to God. Till up that soil, Father. We're going to sing. We're going to pray. We'll have communion. There's communion in the back. And maybe you've realized that the soil of your heart is hard. Maybe it's shallow. Maybe you're focusing too much on the emotions and you're like, I don't have that feeling for Jesus anymore. Good, get in the word. You don't need the feeling, you need the word of God. Maybe worldly focus is choking out God's word in you. You need to surrender that to him. Ask him to create in you a clean heart. Remove the heart of stone. Give you a soft heart for his word. And then when our worship begins, bring it to the Lord. You can go back to the tables, get communion, confess. Give your time to Jesus right now. Let's be together in worship. Would you stand with me and pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, your great love for us. And as we continue now in worship, we give this time to you to do your work in our heart. We thank you that your word is powerful, never returns empty. It fills us, changes us we thank you right now for this time of worship to turn our hearts to you. We'd ask that you bless this church, this community, as we go forward as people who are committed to being in your words, that we will grow and multiply that bountiful harvest for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.